Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Julia Schwetz, who is a senior lecturer in Christ College at the University of Cambridge. Julia was also actually my director of studies during my undergrad, and so I'm really excited to finally have her on the show. Julia's work is mostly about micro and behavioral economics, which means that she is interested in analyzing data to try and explain why we make the decisions that we make. And in particular, Julia is interested about some of the more unusual decisions that we make. So decisions that might appear weird or irrational, uh, to use that dreaded word. Um, so in this episode, we really talk about two papers that get at different examples of this kind of weird, irrational behavior. The first one is overconfidence, which means trying to understand why people think that they are so much better than they actually are, and really that they have any right to believe that they are. And then if there might be any strategic reasons why being overconfident can actually be useful. Um, The second paper that we're interested in is about rank incentives, which is a little bit more abstract, but basically what it means is um, why people might be motivated by things like social prestige, more so than by other things such as like money. And I think it's really interesting and, and really kind of blurs the line between what we normally think economics is and what kind of psychology is. That leads us quite nicely onto the last part of our conversation, which is mostly about what kind of value economics can add here. Julia points out that a large part of it is taking kind of existing lab experiments and seeing if they hold in the real world. So we'll talk about why just relying on lab data can give you a skewed image of what is actually happening. And also a bit about the social science uh, replication crisis. As always, we add chapter marks and we also have a write-up where, where you can find out a lot more about everything we kind of talked about. Um, but without any further ado, we start by asking Julia about what got her interested in economics in the first place. I've always enjoyed thinking about people, about their characters, their motivations. Being Russian, I grew up on novels that have complex characters and moral dilemmas like Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov. So I really liked thinking about what makes people tick. At the same time, I liked maths a lot, the beauty and the rigor of it. And what attracted me to economics initially is it's um, the wonderful combination of the two, that you can bring the mathematical models, rigorous logical models, to study human behavior. Okay, so we're going to talk about your work on overconfidence. And my first question is, what is overconfidence in this context? That is the context of behavioral economics. In what sense does it deviate from what you might describe as rational and Bayesian and this kind of thing? So there are various definitions of overconfidence one could uh, employ, but Uh, let's not get bogged down in that and let's just um, define overconfidence quite roughly as people uh, believing that they are somehow better or more able than they actually are. Uh, Your second question is very interesting. How is this overconfidence? Is it it compatible with... um, rational information processing? And the answer to this is yes and no. So it's possible 
that people are overconfident simply because they don't have any information. So suppose you're on an um, uninhabited island and you've never seen anything else and you've been asked, how does your island rank in terms of production of coconuts relative to all other islands in the world? But you just really don't know. So you might give a random answer, and there is a good chance that this answer may overstate uh, your island's true rank. So that would kind of make you overconfident about your island, but actually it's just a mistake because you don't have any information. So there, what appears like overconfidence doesn't actually violate any um, information, rational information processing assumptions. The story is a little different if you were given lots and lots of information about coconut production on other islands, and you still keep saying that your island is the one with the most coconuts, even if it's not. That does not look very rational anymore. We would expect rational agents to use the information to what economists would call update their beliefs and converge on the true answer. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I didn't consider the possibility that you could arrive at a false overconfident belief by a more or less rational process in cases where you just don't have enough information to reliably get to the, the truth. It's a great point. Um, I'm curious to know now about some examples in the real world, other than your own study, which we'll talk about, um, about overconfidence. And in particular, does it vary a surprising amount across professions and settings or are more or less most people, most of the time, the same kind of level of overconfidence? There's masses of evidence from psychology that people are overconfident. In fact, there is so much evidence. Uh, a lot of people believe this is the best documented human bias. So from Adam Smith to Richard Thaler, people talk about overconfidence being the most robustly proven human bias. Most of this evidence, however, comes from laboratory experiments. What do I mean by this? Student volunteers are asked to participate in an experiment where they are asked, for example, to take an IQ test. Following this test, they are asked to rank themselves against other participants they've never met in how well they do on this IQ test. You can probably see where I'm going with this. The situation is not that much different from the coconuts. So often, the, a lot of this evidence that we have actually comes from people trying to predict where they are in the ranking on some measure they have not really encountered before and don't have very much information about. Coming back to your original question, this is also not exactly the real world you asked me about. Uh, students are wonderful. I, I love students. But student volunteers are not exactly representative of the real world. One of the challenges for studying overconfidence is that we have very little evidence from the real world about overconfidence. 
it's not entirely surprising because people don't reveal their minds to us uh, so so easily. There is a little bit of evidence, and we might talk a bit more about it later, uh, in the context of CEOs or um, people with high health risks. But all, all of this evidence is very indirect. One thing that might be worth kind of bringing into this discussion, so one of the other uh, episodes we did was about gym membership and people being really, I guess, like overconfident in a way of thinking how much they were going to use the gym. Um, and that being like an example, I guess, of like real life of how people show it. But there is like a real problem, right, in being able to say that that is because of overconfidence as opposed to other things such as commitment devices um, and other things. And I guess that like empirical way of testing out on the field seems really difficult. Um, can you speak a bit to that and how you can better test um, how to really point out that it is overconfidence and not another effect? Absolutely. That's, that's exactly the challenge. So there, there is a number of studies that have found behavior that is consistent with overconfidence, like the gym study that you talked about. And it's generally the way we so decide whether we believe that this is overconfidence or not is to ask, can it also be consistent with other uh, plausible stories? And in some, some of these um, papers, it is actually very hard to find a plausible alternative explanation. And that's what I call the indirect evidence. We see that people take out a gym membership, but uh, they don't actually use it. And the only really way to describe, to explain this is to say, well, they were really overconfident about their own uh, commitment to exercise. <laughs> we see similar behavior in some other settings. Um, so for instance, there is a, um, a very nice paper by Emily Oster and co-authors about people who are at risk from Huntington disease. Uh, it's a very serious degenerative disorder, which um, really shortens people's lifespan and affects their quality of life. Yet what they observe in their study is that out of their sample, who are all at-risk individuals identified by physicians, only a very small fraction is actually willing to take a genetic test, which would for sure inform them if they have Huntington disease. So what we, what we see is that uh, people are reluctant to reveal information about um, this particular bad thing that might happen to them. The second thing they do in the study is they asked uh, these subjects to estimate what is their chance they think of developing Huntington disease, those people who don't take the test. And what they find is that systematically these people understate their probability of developing this disease compared to a specialist judgment. In fact, um, for the cases where the specialist says almost for sure this person is going to develop Huntington disease, uh, the person usually thinks their probability of developing it is about 50%. So again, it, this we see this behavior, it's not a direct test of overconfidence, but it, it is very hard to explain it other than by saying 
people are being overconfident about their health. There's also an example about chess players that I remember coming across. Can you talk about that? So, so in, in the study by um, Park and Santos Pinto, they find that chess players who repeatedly play in tournaments are systematically overconfident about their um, chances of winning. And this, I think, is a very interesting piece of evidence because remember our initial discussion about making mistakes when you don't have any information versus not processing information correctly. Well, unlike people who are at risk from Huntington disease, who really, it's a one-off thing in your lifetime, these chess players actually play games repeatedly. So they are the kind of guys that have a lot of information. And this is one of the papers that actually suggests to us that these may not be just mistakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And when you think about examples like that chess example, it does make you think that maybe there is some kind of beneficial reason to be overconfident. Like, sure, it's irrational in a narrow sense, but I can imagine being a chess player. And if I had, you know, you know if I'm realistic about my chances of winning this next tournament, then it's going to be a lot harder just to get out of bed and pay the fee and then like go and lose another tournament. If I'm like unrealistically confident about my chess skills, then maybe I could just play enough to get to the point where I really do start improving. So I want to ask, in the kind of general case, why do so many people appear overconfident? And is this kind of self-benefit type thought applicable? And in that sense, is overconfidence maybe irrational in a narrow sense, but kind of self-serving or rational in some kind of broad, wobbly sense? So that's the million dollar question, right? Is um, is the fact that overconfidence is so pervasive, does that fact imply that there is somehow demand for overconfidence on our part, that these are not just cognitive mistakes, that for some reason we find it beneficial to engage in overconfidence? And this is exactly what a paper by um, Roland Benabou and Jean Tirole is about where they study overconfidence as an example of what they call motivated beliefs. Um, in their model, just like in your example uh, about getting out of bed in the morning for a chess player, uh, in their model, people are subject to other psychological forces, for example, time and consistency. So even though I tell my, I enrolled myself in a tournament a month ago, on the morning I might say, I really, I don't have that much chance of winning, so I'm just not going to bother. What overconfidence does for them is overcomes that, just like you described in your example. So indeed, one of the theories behind overconfidence is this theory of motivated beliefs. However, we don't know whether this is true. It's just a theoretical hypothesis. And that's exactly what we have tried to test in our paper. I'm just going to try to kind of get this straight in my head as someone who's kind of hearing this more or less for the first time. So it's a thought that... Um, people are time inconsistent or you know lazy and you can compensate for that by becoming less lazy and 
more uh, motivated, but you can also com compensate for it by keeping your kind of motivation given some level of self-confidence fixed and then just becoming more confident in yourself, even if it's just unrealistic. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So the way that uh, Benabou and Tyrol model it is that you, their agent, <laughs> economists always have agents at the heart of their model, their agents makes an investment. Um, and that say that's getting out of bed for uh, the chess tournament. The agent estimates the probability of the investment succeeding. And that if that probability is low enough, then the agent doesn't get out of bed, doesn't make the investment. So if you, in your mind, are over-optimistic about the probability of winning or the probability of the investment being successful, then you're more likely to get out of bed. Exactly right. So let's unpack this idea of motivated beliefs then before we get onto your study about how you actually tested this. Um, one of the things that I guess we can ask is, okay, let's try and find out if this theory is true. If this theory of motivated beliefs is true, then there must be some sort of mechanism or some sort of role that we actually form these beliefs. And you pointed out uh, in your paper about the importance of memory and how memory might play a role here. Um, can you talk about that? Again, the idea of uh, memory playing a role here, first of all, comes from psychology. For us, the point of departure was the paper by Benabou and Tirol, which we mentioned already, where they say, look, uh, on the one hand, there may be demand for overconfidence from people. And that's what we just described. The demand for, for overconfidence comes from the fact that you want to get out of bed. But the other side of the story, they say, is um, there must be a supply of overconfidence. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, uh, how is it possible that our mind allows us to be overconfident? What's the mechanism by which we don't actually learn our true chances of succeeding in the chess tournament and keep telling ourselves that our chances are bigger than they actually are. Um, you asked me about memory. So the theory that Benabou and Tirol put forward is that memory is the mechanism that allows the supply of overconfidence. What they suggest is that people still process information in the Bayesian way, but they use their memory to substitute some of the signals, some of the pieces of information they don't like with something more palatable. And that's how an overconfidence belief is formed, that you're only, your memory is selective and you're selecting the information that supports your own overconfident view of yourself. So is the thought that you know, there may be demand for overconfidence in the sense that it might benefit you sometimes and might help motivate you to do things. But there's also this question of how you become overconfident. And clearly, in most cases, you can't just decide that it'd be good if you were overconfident and then decide to have these like false beliefs about how good you are at something um, because belief doesn't work like that. And so one way you could do it is you have all this past data about how well you performed in, you know, last week's chess tournaments, and you could change the way that you process that information. And another answer is you kind of just select the 
past information which you choose to process. And that past information is your memory. So what's going on here is I just kind of happen to remember the times where I did really well. And I, you know, forget all the times where I got like mated in four moves. And that's what's going on. Yes, yes, that's that's exactly right. There are also other techniques uh, which are described in other papers, um, including a survey paper by Benabou and Tirol. And one of them is information avoidance. You can say, oh, I, d I don't want to know uh, how, how I, I've done in the past. It is possible in some circumstances to exercise information avoidance but not in others. With all of this, I guess, kind of background information laying it out, we can now finally get onto your paper and what you were testing. And I guess kind of summarizing what we were just talking about, you're testing for, for two kind of things here. On the one hand, you're trying to see if overconfidence, this kind of persistent overconfidence, uh, actually exists in the real world as opposed to just in the lab. And then going on from that, you're also testing to see, okay, what might cause this overconfidence and can selective memory or can this kind of idea of motivated beliefs explain some of the overconfidence that we might be seeing in the real world? So with those two kind of questions out there, can you kind of walk us through what data you were able to, to use to, to test these theories uh, to test these hypotheses? We wanted to know whether we can find overconfidence in decisions that actually matter and for which people have a lot of information. So if overconfidence is found, it cannot be dismissed as these, as those errors um, about the coconuts. Um, when I say we, I'm talking about um, my two co-authors, uh, David Huffman and Colin Raymond, with whom I've been very lucky to do this study. We got very lucky because um, a large firm wanted to collaborate with us uh, on this. The firm is a chain of food and drink stores, and every store has a manager. These managers are paid a quarterly bonus in addition to their regular salary by this firm. And this quarterly bonus is based on the manager's performance at the end of the quarter relative to other managers. So managers are ranked against everybody else. And the bonus is based on this rank. All the results of this competition are public. So managers see every quarter how they've done and how others have done in this competition. Moreover, managers get weekly feedback on their rank. In other words, although the competition only takes place once a quarter at the very end, every week they get feedback on where they would be if the competition took place in this particular week. So managers are practically bombarded by, with information about uh, their rank. This is what we thought was so interesting about this data. When we looked at it, when we saw how the incentive scheme worked, how much information the managers were getting, how central this competition was to their daily work, we realized that this was a very good testing ground 
for whether there was really persistent overconfidence in the field. No, great. And I guess now that we have an understanding right, of what, what you were testing, I guess the, the natural inclination then to ask is, uh, what did you find? Were, were managers so overconfident despite all of the information they got? And um, despite, I guess, like how much is at stake as well for them to, to have like an accurate understanding of, of where they're kind of ranking? To measure overconfidence, we asked the managers to predict which quintile of the ranking they would fall into at the end of the current quarter. By quintile, of course, I mean which 20% from the bottom 20% to the top. What did we find? Um, when we got the manager's predictions and waited for a bit for the quarter to be over, then we got the actual results from the firm and we compared the two, about 30% of managers thought they would come out in the top quintile, so in the top 20%. By contrast, only 10% of managers thought they would come out in the bottom 20%. So this already gave us uh, the first indication that overconfidence was there. I should probably say that this is not quite what we expected. We went in thinking that maybe we won't find any overconfidence just because there was so much information available to the managers. So the, the theory of Bayesian updating says they should have converged on the truth. So uh, one thing you, you found was that people were in general like wrong, right? Um, wrong in the sense of they thought they were going to be somewhere else in the quarter ahead than they actually were. But you actually also found that this actual type of error was asymmetric. Can you can you talk a bit about what you found there and what that kind of means? If we look at individual predictions, what we found is about a third of managers were accurate about the quintile they would fall into. Or just under a fifth of managers were underconfident. So they were actually predicting a worse quintile that they ended up in. And almost a half of managers were overconfident. So they were predicting a better quintile than actual. Here we can see the symmetry that you're talking about. Uh, the groups have very different size. So a third, roughly speaking, a third of um, accurate guys, a fifth of underconfident, and about a half of overconfident. So as a group, overconfident people dominate. So we've got this evidence for, right, for that first question we talked about, which is that even in this real world where people have loads of information, as you said, we're bombarded with information, they still appear overconfident, or at least a lot of people appear overconfident. Um, but then that question becomes, okay, um, why is that? And um, and we were interested to see, okay, could this idea of motivated beliefs and this role of memory be really important? So you also did the second thing, right, of, of trying to test for the role of, of memory. Can you talk about what you did there and, and what you found? Yes, uh, absolutely. What we asked the managers to do as a separate exercise is to tell us what they remember their rank was in the last competition that was already 
completed and publicized in the company. And again, just like um, we economists, we believe in revealed behavior rather than stated behavior. So we paid the managers for correct answers, both in case of predicting the future and also in case of recalling the past. When they recalled the past, of course, we had the actual data. So all we needed to do is to compare their recollections with the data that the firm has given us already. And it was very clear who was right and who was wrong. Although we did give the managers a slight margin of error because we were right asking for a rank and it's unreasonable to expect people to remember the rank exactly. So we said plus minus 10 ranks is fine. Uh, we're talking about um, roughly 250 managers here. So we asked them to recall this rank um, uh, in the in the separate in a separate exercise. Yeah, and and what 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 did you find? Perhaps the best way to think about our findings is in terms of a graph. So if you uh, plot the actual rank that people received in the last tournament versus the rank that they recalled, first of all, you see that there is a positive correlation, which is reassuring. It means that managers were not throwing random numbers at us. The second thing you see is, although there is positive correlation, there, there are quite a lot of mistakes. The third thing you see is that these mistakes are not symmetric. Again, we come to this uh, idea of asymmetric errors. If you look at people who did really well in the last competition, they don't make errors. They remember how they did pretty well. But as you look at people who didn't do so well, you get more and more errors. And the final thing that we observe is that these errors are predominantly in one direction. People exaggerate how they performed in the last competition in their head when they were reporting this to us. Yeah, and we'll we'll include a picture of this chart, right, for listeners um, who might have like trouble uh, imagining this all in their head, but it's really quite shocking to see, right? You have this like straight, you know, 45 degree y equals x kind of line, which is, you know, what, what it should be uh, for people to recall. And then you can see what the mean actually is. And it's really close for like the first 50 ranks. And then it just kind of like takes off and people then start making mistakes. And I guess that kind of right links into what we're, what you were saying about this, this motivated reasoning and this uh, very selective recall of memory. Uh, absolutely. What this graph shows uh, is that as, as a group, these managers are using selective memory. But that's not quite enough for us to say that motivated beliefs are at work. In order to make that statement, we need to look at an individual level. What we need to find is a link at an individual level between overconfident predictions and these selective rosy memories of the past. And that's what we do in the in the last part of this paper, is that we uh, put the two results together and look at an individual level. And lo and behold, we find this link. So people who are overconfident are more likely 
to have rosy memories, to be selective about what they remember from the past. I'm curious to ask now about the implications of this uh, study. So I've got the impression that, you know, there's a lot of lab type evidence for overconfidence. And that's not so surprising, right? Like you give some student taking a, doing a study for course credit, you give them like an IQ test or something they've never done before and ask them to rank themselves. It's nothing to go on. There's no, there are no stakes. People are going to be overconfident. But maybe the hope is that you get into the real world where there are some pretty firm incentives to be right. The stakes are a lot higher and people have a lot more access to past information about their own performance. You might hope that they are far less overconfident or not overconfident at all. But in this example, people are pretty overconfident. And that feels kind of like a bummer to me. It feels pessimistic. So yeah, I guess I'm curious whether this implies anything about how we can come up with incentives to stop people from being so overconfident in cases where it's harmful. Um, are there any kind of heuristics or like rules of thumb that you use in your own case to kind of pick up on when you're being overconfident and tamper that? This is a very interesting question, and I think I'm not going to give an entirely satisfactory answer to it. But let me try to unpack it a little bit. There, there's a lot in this question. I think the first question for me is, is this a pessimistic finding? And it's certainly pessimistic for the Bayesian theory of economics. Um, we People are not purely Bayesian uh, information processors as, as, econ <laughs> as economists have modeled them for years. Um, otherwise, is it, whether this is a pessimistic finding or not depends a little bit on whose point of view uh, you're looking from. So first of all, from the manager's point of view, is this finding pessimistic? So on the one hand, they are inaccurate. That's, that's clear. But on the other hand, remember, we've come to this by saying maybe what's at work here is this theory of motivated beliefs. And in fact, we've now come to evidence that's consistent with the theory of motivated beliefs. And at the heart of this theory is a conjecture that people persist in overconfidence because they're getting some benefit from it. They may also be paying a cost as well, because sometimes they will get it very wrong. So sometimes a chess player will force himself to go to a tournament he really doesn't have any place to be in. But the reason why overconfidence persists is because it delivers a benefit, because there is this demand. So it becomes actually ambiguous whether the finding is uh, pessimistic from a point of view of an individual and whether it would be better for an individual if somebody 
fixed this little thing in their head and uh, adjusted the belief. That is not clear. Yeah, I was going to say it then. So um, do we have evidence from that then that more overconfident managers tend to be worse performing managers? Like, Is there any reason to believe that overconfidence is actually harmful for them or that they might even be more overconfident in like actual managerial decisions, right? As opposed to survey things that really get at their ego or um, that really cause them to, to self-reflect on their performance. So this is a very important question about how overconfidence actually affects performance and decisions. And this is a question we don't really look at in this study, except in a very preliminary way. We have some very early evidence on our managers, which should be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. What we see among our managers is that people who are overconfident tend to do better on some dimensions of performance and worse on other dimensions. So they seem to be better at generating profit for the shop, but they seem to do worse on service, which is also something that the company measures and tracks very closely. Again, we have some suggestive evidence for why they're doing worse on service. What we see is the company issues recommendations to these managers about how they should staff their shops. So how many people they should have and which jobs these people should be doing. What we see is that overconfident managers are more likely to deviate from this recommendation of the firm and do something else and particularly understaff their uh, shop. And that um, translates into worse service. So these are just preliminary results, but they're already suggestive, again, that overconfidence can be a double-edged sword. Did you find any gender differences with respect to overconfidence here so there's a kind of you know you hear it said that um women may tend to be like less overconfident in work environments um and does that bear out what does your research have to say about that a very interesting question and the one we were also very curious to explore the answer is no we don't find any differences any gender differences in overconfidence here. It's not entirely surprising because we don't have a random sample of individuals. We have a sample of managers who have self-selected into this job. And this job is highly competitive. So we, what we think is happening is that women who are not that confident would probably not go into this job. And that might explain why we're not finding any differences. Let's move on to the second of your studies, which we kind of wanted to unpack here, which was about this idea of rank incentives. So you actually used the same data, right, uh, that you got um, from, from this company about managers and stuff to kind of see how people respond to uh, financial incentives. 
as opposed to rank for some reasons of, of social prestige. So I know that's a bit kind of wishy-washy in there, but would you mind uh, kind of expanding about that to, to listeners about what you were interested in finding here and what different thing you were looking to, to test? One of the implications of the study that we just talked about on overconfidence is that managers clearly appear to care about their rank. And this is not total news to, uh, certainly not to um, psychologists and uh, sociologists. Economists as well have been exploring this idea that people might care about their relative standing, status, prestige. This then begs the following question. A lot of organizations employ incentive schemes where people are ranked against each other and then they're paid based on this ranking. Economists have studied these incentive schemes ad nauseum because they have some very nice properties. We typically refer to them as relative performance compensation schemes. They are usually better incentives than incentives not based on um, relative performance. But if we think that people are actually driven by rank itself, it means that these schemes have separate effects on people that are not through financial incentives. And that's what this second paper of ours is about. It's trying to think about how big these effects are and how do they compare to the financial incentive effects, and what's the nature of these effects? It's not, a priori, it's not clear what is the direction of rank effects. So suppose uh, you were told by your employer that out of 200 people, you have ranked 180th in the last quarter. How do you feel about this piece of information? One possibility is you say, oh, that, that's quite low. I better uh, pull up my socks and put in a bit more effort to do better next time. But it's also possible that you say, 180s? And I worked so hard, I'm just going to give up. This is a total sham. Which of these effects is going to be present is an empirical question. And we don't really have that much evidence on this. We have some evidence, uh, but it's a little bit mixed and a lot of it is from the lab. So it was important for us to look at what actually happens in the field. One of the reasons, right, why there must be so little evidence on this is that it must be really hard to test, right? So kind of starting with that first thing you mentioned um, out of those two things you were looking into, which is this question of, do people care about rank because there's money involved, right? If I do better, I get a bigger bonus and money is good, so I want to do better. Or is there like a more uh, like, you know, fundamental reason why I care about doing well out of this group of relative managers or out of my peers? And I guess the problem in, in finding evidence on this is because you get both, right? Um, when you look at the data, right? When people do better, you get both. So it's really hard to actually test which one of these two it is. But um, your data allowed you to to do this. Uh, could you explain why your data was special in uh, allowing you to test this? And I guess what you found then as well? You're, you're exactly right. The key issue is 
in disentangling the rank effects from incentive effects empirically is that the two usually go together. So if we think of, let's say, um, a sports tournament, the better is your rank, the closer you are to the top, the more likely you are to win the, the big monetary prize that's a, at the end of it. So disentangling the financial effects from the status or rank effects is very hard. These data are structured in a way that gave us an opportunity to disentangle the two effects. We already mentioned that managers get ranked based on the competition at the end of the quarter. The, the way that the bonus is calculated is the following. The ranking is divided into bands and everybody within the same band is going to get the same bonus. So your precise rank does not matter for the bonus you get. What matters is what band you're in. Now, when the managers get their week 11 feedback, they can see two things. They can see what rank they're getting together with everybody else. And they can also see which band they fall in. And not only that, they can see how close they are to the boundary of that band. Why is that important? Because if the manager is close to the band boundary, it means that with only a little bit more effort in the last two weeks in the run-up to the competition, they can actually shift their bonus to a higher band. But if they're quite far away from the boundary of that band, they face zero financial incentives because it's just too far. Whatever they do, they're not going to jump in the last two weeks. Two weeks is just, it's a short period of time. And this is uh, the property we exploit. What it tells us is essentially financial incentives at week 11 oscillate with rank. They increase when you're near the, the boundary to the next band, and then they fall as you get into the middle, and then again they increase as you near the boundary. It's a kind of a, a sinus wave. And th this allows us to separately test for the effect of rank and the effect of incentives. F following on from that then, so I guess if people were to care about financial incentives, you would also see it oscillate, right? Because it makes sense to put more effort in when it's worth putting more effort in. So you would also imagine it to, to oscillate. And if people just cared about prestige or they just cared about the social stuff, then that oscillation shouldn't matter because you still care about your rank. You don't care about the band, you care about the rank you're in. So you have these two you know, very different uh, outcomes you would expect. And I guess, which one of those two did you, did you find then? And what does that mean? What we find is that there is very little response to financial incentives in these two weeks. We find a little bit, but it's it's quite weak and small. We do, however, find people responding to rank. And remember, we started with the question, well, which direction does this response go into? Is it going to be, I, I'll try to catch up or I'll try to give up when I get a very high, bad rank? And what we find quite unambiguously in the data is that people try to catch up. So when they 
get a rank that is large, which means you're low down in the ranking, they improve their performance. What's also nice about this data set is that not only we see people's performance, we also see some of the managers' decisions about the variables that directly affect this performance, particularly how much labor to employ in their shop. And what we see is that labor moves in the same direction as would be predicted by the idea that managers want to improve their ranking. So when managers want to improve the ranking on profit, they cut labor because labor is a cost. However, when they want to improve their ranking on service, they increase labor because that's how you get better service. And that's a very important building block of these results. So it seems very intentional, right, what managers are doing. But I guess like from this kind of, was it a homo, homo economicus perspective, this really doesn't seem to, to make any sense. So I'm imagining, okay, I'm a manager um, two weeks before this, this kind of bonus allocation. I get told, Luca, you've been doing really poorly. Uh, you are 20 places behind. There's no way you're going to be able to catch up in these two weeks. And still... Um, I make this very intentional decision of changing my labor strategy so I can improve my my service or I can improve my profits or whatever I'm kind of lacking on. And I still invest all of this effort just to improve my ranking, even though there doesn't really seem to be any financial incentive that's worth me putting in all of this effort. One thing that we're definitely not saying is that um, incentives have no role. I think it's important to realize that we're looking here on a, at a small margin the last two weeks. This is definitely does not does not imply that the whole incentive scheme can be scrapped <laughs> and the managers would try just as hard as before. No, we don't believe that at all. There are lots of theories that tell us why people might care about rank, even though it is not tied to financial incentives. Psychologists and sociologists have long picked up on the fact that people have this status concerns. Where exactly they're coming from is a bit of an open question. Larry Samuelson and his colleagues have a nice paper talking about why people may care about their rank based on evolutionary reasons. The, the theory they propose is that Back uh, in prehistoric times, it was important to look at what other people were doing before you made your own decisions, because that's how you collected information about the environment. So if your neighbor worked a lot on the land, you concluded from this that the conditions were such that the harvests would would be a good one. So you, in turn, try to work hard. Observationally, this looks like keeping up with the Joneses. I'm working hard because my neighbor is working hard and I want to keep up with him. But the reason, the fundamental reason was that you were trying to learn about the environment. And so that's one of the explanations for why people might still exhibit these kind of rank concerns, even though they're not directly tied to financial incentives now. 
I also want to bring up something else. Um, another explanation which is consistent with this data. So we might say that people care about rank because they have these status concerns. But an alternative explanation could be that people simply care about getting the job done well. And rank is a really good measure for how well you're doing your job. Compare it with an absolute measure of performance. Suppose you know your profit figure, but you don't know anybody else's. How do you know whether this is good or bad? So an alternative explanation of our findings is that people are simply care about their job, doing a good job, and this is a very good measure for them. So maybe you could relate everything we've been talking about back to overconfidence, because when managers get the news about their performance and their relative performance, they might find out that they were being overconfident in the sense that they're performing worse than expectations, right? And you mentioned that that could give them a reason to catch up either with their own expectations or with other people's performance or to give up because they're depressed by the uh, feedback about how well they're doing they're putting all this effort in do economists have any ideas about what determines either behavior what makes it more likely that i decide to give up when i learn bad news or that i decide to really get motivated and catch up when i get that news it's a very interesting question, and I'm afraid the answer to, to it is that we have very little idea. Uh, we're just starting to explore this uh, phenomena empirically, and we only have very limited evidence on this, and it, it would be a great topic for future research. One thing I wanted to ask about as well, which kind of um, looks at both of your papers together is the different role of feedback. Because like in the first paper, when we talked about overconfidence and especially kind of this recollection, right, of like how well you were doing in the past, people seem to be really bad, right? Or like at least made maybe even a subconscious decision to be really bad at remembering their past feedback or their past rank. But this paper here points out that people really care about it, like fundamentally, and are really driven by it. And it'd be interesting to see how you can kind of reconcile these two different approaches to feedback or to rank, where if it kind of goes against our beliefs or against our, our kind of ego, then we'd like to ignore it. But intrinsically, we do seem to really respond to this information and, and be really driven by it. That's a very nice question. Um, I actually don't see the two papers as contradictory. I think they are quite complementary. And the reason is because we're talking about different time scales here. So in the overconfidence paper, people were bad at remembering the last quarter's outcome, which is the, the thing that they apparently care about because that's what they're overconfident about. If it didn't go in the direction they liked, what we see here is when they're given weekly feedback two weeks before the actual competition happens they quickly adjust their behavior to bump up the final uh, result of the competition at the end of the quarter so to us it's actually quite consistent with this desire to maintain overly positive self-image 
I have a two-week window. I'm going to work to bring that number up at the end of the quarter. If it doesn't work, I'm going to forget it. I'm going to forget that performance level. That's how we reconcile the two results. Okay, so at the top of this episode, you talked about some lab experiments giving evidence for overconfidence and then you explained how you went out into the field into the real world and found evidence there as well but you also mentioned that there is a kind of worry about just doing lab experiments and not testing them against natural experiments so i guess a first question is in general what kind of reasons might you have for expecting things to turn out differently in the real world given that you found some effect in this really controlled lab setting? The first thing I'm going to say is that I think lab experiments are extremely important. In fact, they, I think, revolutionized economics because they really brought it to our attention how different people's behavior was from some of our models. This is where the first warning bells were um, really ringing. So lab experiments are hugely important, but I also firmly believe that in order to understand how things work in the real world, we have to move beyond the lab and test things in the field. You asked me for the reasons for that. I think there are three things that make one cautious about lab experiments. First of all, they're done with student volunteers. They're not representative of the population at large. And in fact, we know there, there's some evidence that they can behave differently in the lab from other types of people. For example, sometimes we observe that students are less generous uh, when it comes to sort of sharing the money uh, um, uh, in in the lab, and that's not at all surprising because students generally have less money than people out there in the world, and so they care about uh, um, each additional pound a little bit more. That's the first reason. The second reason is that these lab experiments are done on volunteers. We cannot yet force people to take part in a lab experiment. But now think about who these people are. They are the people who voluntarily agreed to do a lab experiment. It's a highly self-selected sample, which may behave very differently from just an average Joe on the street. The final reason is probably the one that, for me, is the most compelling reason to move from lab experiments into the field. However hard you try in the lab, and there are people who are very good at this and spend a lot of time thinking about this, the scenario that the subjects are given in the lab is necessarily artificial. It's a bit of a game that is, if it's an economics experiment, it's typically played for money, but it's still a bit of an artificial game. Part of what happens is clearly an experiment is focused on something. When a subject has an hour or an hour and a bit to 
work on this experiment, for that window of time, the scenario in the experiment is the only game in town for the subject. They're completely focused on it. And that can generate some pretty um, artificial results. So for instance, uh, we see some studies on rank done in the lab experiments where we see that people really care about rank. But if that's all that is happening in your little experiment, then it's natural that it becomes very salient to people. So it's very hard to conclude whether in the real world, where there's so many different things competing for people's attention, they would care as much about rank. Yeah, that's a really good point. And for instance, in your overconfidence example, we have really neat, clear examples of overconfidence in the lab because you can isolate overconfidence from other things. And then you went out into the world and you found evidence for overconfidence, but maybe it, it's a little bit weaker or, you know, in general, your kind of uh, field results might be a little murkier, a little more equivocal or messier, just because there are a hundred things going on in addition to the the thing you care about measuring. Um, so sure, we should expect that. But are there any examples of an actual like conflict or contradiction between field and lab data in behavioral economics? And do those examples point towards like any interesting areas for future research, which you'd be excited to see? I don't exactly know about contradictions, but one area where lab experiments don't exactly match up to what we see in the real world is trying to measure people's generosity. Economists have played different games like dictator game or ultimatum game in the lab. And what we see is people very generously share uh, the, the money that the experimenter gives them with other people. Unlike what economic theory predicts, purely selfish human beings should be doing. These results were very important in stimulating the development of um, social preferences research in behavioral economics. So they are very important results, but they don't easily translate into the real world. Why is that? Well, for example, take the dictator game. We see quite often in the lab that when person A is given a pound and they're asked to divide that pound between themselves and person B, where person B has no effect, no influence over this division, we often see that people, person A, would offer half of the pound to person B. That's very nice, that's very fair and very generous. But how do we translate this result into the real world? Well, taken very literally, it suggests that we should be giving half of our wealth away to people who don't have very much. And there is a lot of um, charitable giving in the world, but it's not of that magnitude. Similarly, Lab experiments on reciprocity show quite a lot of positive reciprocity between people. So when somebody does um, a good thing 
for me in the lab experiment i respond by uh, doing a good thing for them when we take these experiments and here by we i mean economists these are not my studies when economists take these experiments into the field we see that positive reciprocity mm, the evidence is much more mixed on it it is a much weaker it is often short-lived so we don't really understand why these lab experiments don't quite translate into behavior in the field that's really interesting and it makes me think of okay so on one hand you have you know um this big replication crisis in the social sciences, which you know includes behavioral economics. But then you might think you have a slightly different problem, which is a kind of this worry that you're expressing about the external validity of a study that you've done in a lab. In other words, you've done your study and you have this result. And let's just assume that the result is a true positive. So we're not worrying about replication. But you can still ask how the result applies to the real world. You know, often these studies, they kind of very naturally suggest like recommendations or policy changes. And this matters because often you'll get a study like this, which is takes a result from a really controlled lab setting. And then it gets picked up in like pop psychology books and often by the media. And you get this kind of cycle of hype where people are bigging up the claims until it's just this kind of you know, scientists have shown that um, this will guarantee this. Um, mm -hmm. And you can even imagine that reaching a point where it makes its way into policy or at least the kind of decisions that people actually make. So I don't have a very interesting question here other than, do you think this is really a worry or is this just a kind of over-egged over type problem? I think this is something that people need to think carefully about. And there are two ways in which we could try to um, address this worry. One is to carefully think about the theory behind uh, the experimental finding. So if you want to take the lab experiment and apply it to some real world setting, think about the theory that uh, underlies it. And are the key assumptions satisfied in your setting? The other is, and this is going to be a um, shamelessly evangelical pitch, <laughs> we should do more field experiments. So policymakers and decision makers within firms should be very open to doing randomized controlled trials with the um, subjects that will ultimately be affected by the dis by the policy often economists encounter resistance when we suggest something like this the answer that often comes back to us is we don't want to experiment on people and here's where i think we come back to the issue of overconfidence if we really knew that a certain policy worked well we could just roll it out without experiments but most of the time the truth is that we don't know and 
when we are rolling out a policy that's not based on evidence, we're not actually doing anybody any favors. Instead, we should first experiment, find out what actually works, what actually helps people or the situation, and then roll it out. That really like resonates with me because uh, I always think like you can either do a controlled experiment, right, with let's say a thousand people, or you do an experiment literally with you know eighty million people. If you just roll it out nationally straight away, like it makes so little sense to me to to not do the evidence first. And it reminds me as well, um, Finn, if you remember, we did that episode with Luke Freeman, and in the write up, um, I kind of found this like study of like the growth of the GDP per capita effect of like different economic reforms. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's insane where like it can range anywhere from uh, Iran, where it was $150,000, like a loss, all the way to positive ones like Taiwan, where it was like $75,000 per capita. But like the range is insane. And this was all done by people who, you know, were all macro economists or policy makers who really thought they checked out all the evidence and really thought these things through. And the range is like honestly life-changing. Um, yeah, it's 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 insane. Uh, absolutely, and I think what's also quite um, dangerous is after a policy is rolled out to the entire population. So, look as you say, there is a, an an experiment of sort that's going on. The problem often is that nobody is willing to evaluate what the yeah. consequences are because people who rolled it out firmly believe that this is a good thing. And they don't necessarily want this belief, want to confront uh, the evidence. Yeah, and, and you don't have a control group either, right? So it's even harder to, to even test this because people can always blame it on something else because um, you don't have treatment and control. You only have uh, the policy. Absolutely. Yeah, I do have, uh, this, is a, this is a stupid question, but I am curious to hear your answer, which is on this topic of running a randomized trial, um, if you just had all the resources in the world and you could just kind of run the trial that you want with as many people as you want on any topic, what would you be most interested to, to get an answer on? So these may not be the world's most important questions, but these are some of the questions that are interesting to me and have been uh, puzzling me quite a lot. One very interesting topic for me is um, intrinsic motivation of people. We see in this second study that we discussed that people seem to be not just motivated by financial incentives, but also by this rank, which may actually be simply a desire to do a good job. We're not entirely sure. And I, I'm very interested in questions about what determines whether people have that desire at work, uh, why in some organizations people um, want to do a good job and then other organizations seem to things seem to fall apart and um, people just care about um, financial incentives or nothing at all. So why is it that in certain environments and in certain situations, people exhibit intrinsic motivation. It's some, somewhat linked to the question of social norms within organizations, which I also find very interesting. 
and that in in itself is linked with the question of this rank and social status. So we show we showed that managers in our study clearly care about rank. But more generally, how do we choose social comparisons when we make them in our heads? Why do we compare ourselves against certain people and not others? How do we decide who this circle of people is that we're comparing ourselves against? I find these are very interesting questions. Let's wrap things up then with uh, the final two questions, um, which we ask all our guests. So the first one is, what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? You know, the, it's very uh, funny for me to get this question because um, some time ago, um, I participated in a Freakonomics podcast and the, the topic of that podcast was um, how to change your mind. And of course, they um, invited um, me to talk about the overconfidence paper because what happens in the overconfidence papers, we find evidence that people don't change their minds in the face of facts. The managers are bombarded by information, but they don't um, revise their beliefs. So I talked about this paper in the podcast, and then at the very end, they suddenly asked me, so um, what recent thing have you changed your mind about? And my mind drew blank. I could come up with some trivia from my life, but I couldn't really find something important to tell them about. And I was kicking myself. And of course, later I realized this is completely consistent with the whole story of motivated beliefs. When we change our mind about big things, because this is bad for our ego, we try to hide this fact from ourselves. We try to appear consistent in our own minds. So when I change my mind, there's a part of me that basically says I've always believed what I believe now. You know, you, you told me you were going to ask me this question. And so I remember this, this story, but to, um, I should probably answer your question <laughs> since now I had a chance to think about it. <laughs> um, I, I have an answer of sorts. If we think about economics, um, then I think one thing that I maybe changed my mind about is a little bit too strong, but revised my view on our financial incentives. When I was a student, I really believed almost literally in the principal agent models that we were learning at the university, where the agent, the worker, never puts in any effort unless they see a clear relationship between their effort and financial rewards. The more, the longer I live, the less um, I believe that this is true. I think one reason is what we discussed already. A lot of people have intrinsic motivation to do a good job. Another 
reason is this. If you talk to people who work in, in firms or organizations and you ask them, what's your biggest challenge? They usually say recruiting and hanging on to good people. So they think that actually selection is very important rather than incentives. So selecting the right sorts of people, and that is not really in our economic models. This is not to say that incentives are not important. I think people should be paid um, well for, for the work they do. And in fact, I truly believe that if they don't, they will walk and will find another job. But I don't think that people need to be incentivized for every breath that they take uh, in, in their workplace. So a rather long-winded answer to your no, simple question. No, that was really good, especially that like first bit where I think you really actually uh, attack the fundamental, right? Like the very like meta thing about the question. That was really, really good. Let me let me ask the last one then, which is uh, what are three books, articles, films, or other bits of media that you would recommend to anyone interested in finding out more about what we just talked about? You warned me that you were going to ask me this question. So I had a, a look at what people would normally recommend. And I saw that everybody was recommending books. But I'm going to recommend um, two survey articles. One is by Roland Benabou and Jean Tirole, 2016, which is called Mindful Economics, the Production, Consumption and Value of Beliefs. And this article discusses the idea of motivated beliefs that we talked about quite a lot. It doesn't have any maths in it, so it's a very easy and interesting read. The other article I want to recommend is by Stefano Della Vigna, 2009. It's called Psychology and Economics, Evidence from the Field. This article talks about the importance of field experiments and particularly what evidence we have from the field about behavioral economics. It is a slightly more mathematical article, but it's still a fantastic read. Now, I did feel a bit left out, not recommending any books, so I decided my third recommendation had to be a book. And since we are wrapping up this podcast, I thought we could come the full circle and I could recommend Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment as a read for people who really are interested in human motivations. <laughs> that also doesn't have any maths in it, but a great, great recommendation. Julia Schwetz, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Julia Schwetz on behavioural economics, overconfidence and incentives. If you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Julia. There you'll find more info about everything we talked about, plus links to more books and articles about the key ideas we discussed. We've heard from some listeners in the past that they find these write-ups really valuable. So if you haven't yet, we highly recommend you check it out. We always do put a lot of effort into them. As always, it would be great if you could leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have any feedback, we also have a new star rating form at the top and bottom of each write-up, 
with some space to leave comments. You can also email us any suggestions, thoughts, or hate mail to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can leave a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.